Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. The slow march towards the return of the NBA season continues with interesting new proposals coming in from Kevin O'Connor and Mark Cuban. Stories about Backup center is getting huge and strong. It's like the off-season muscle watch all over again. And we've got one little discussion point on early season strategy on a very different and fun fantasy NBA today. What's happening, everybody? I am Dan Baspris. It is Wednesday, I think. I don't know. If you guys actually know what day of the week it is when you wake up in the morning, you are way better at this quarantine than I am. I looked it up. It is indeed Wednesday. It's the middle of the week. It's, uh, you know, another day in the laundry list of days that have all kind of run together. Uh, as far as what's going on out here on the West Coast, it sounds like barbershops are reopening, which, I don't know, do I have the gumption to actually set foot anywhere outside of my house at this point? I think I've been, uh, I think, Having a newborn has terrified me into pretty much staying put regardless, but the slow reopening of things is happening. They, you know, the At this point, I think we can probably just assume that we're going to be getting a decent announcement at some point here because things are reopening. Everything is moving in the right direction. There really hasn't been this big setback yet, and whether that has to do with a uh, combination of rising temperatures and people still being too afraid to actually get into big crowds. And I know I've seen the pictures. And I, I, I realize that those things make us all facepalm a little bit. But to me, they, they feel like more the exception than the rule. So largely, I think people are are doing a good job of of trying not to get into large groups in tight spaces. And so hopefully we can kind of just exist like this for a little bit. And we'll we'll piecemeal it together. So with that in mind, as as leagues are now slow walking their way back towards actual games, I, I, there's sort of a different feeling in our guts. I was listening to some sports talk radio yesterday because uh, I do I like to get in the car and and drive every once in a while. It's it's kind of a nice way to just not be cooped up in a two bedroom apartment all the time, and. One of the things that the host was noting, which I think we've mentioned on this show before, probably a little bit earlier, because, you know, we're on top of our our business over here, is that the discussion now has changed. The discussion's changed. Because three weeks ago, we were wondering out loud, what the heck was going on? I mean, what was the timeline? Were we actually going to see anything ever again? There was... 
I don't I don't know if I want to say pessimism, but it seemed like there was a level of pragmatism that folks were kind of saying, look, there's there's a very real chance that this season just doesn't come back. Remember, we were, you know, everybody was talking about what's the hard stop date? What's the last date that they could actually play a basketball game? That's what we were talking about. And then all of a sudden here over the last two to three weeks, really like less than two weeks even, it's gone to, you know, rising optimism, discussions about the bubble, where's it going to be? And so now you're into this. And just to kind of follow up on a thought from yesterday's podcast, we're into the smaller details, which is funny to say that deciding actually what's going to happen when it comes back is a smaller detail, but it is. Because the big details right now are, well, is, I think this is a one thing, the biggest and single most important detail is health and safety. We want to know that these players are not going to become, they're not going to be at, at serious risk more than, you know, a normal person going to a normal job at this point, I guess. There needs to be no serious risk. I mean, we already saw Carl uh, Anthony Towns lost his mother to this virus. This is this is a very real thing. And then the, you know, that's number one. That's priority one, two, and three. Priority four is money. And then priority five through, you know, a million are all of these other little things. So to me, the fact that we're hearing about priorities five through a million at this point means that largely priorities one and two are locked into place, meaning the NBA feels good about what it's done in terms of safety protocols, which is probably, you know, the bubble is a big part of it. Testing is a big part of it. Scheduling is going to be a big part of it. And I'm guessing that some of that is thought out, even if it, you know, the individual opponents are not set up against one another. Priority number, I know I called it four, but it's really priority number two is the money aspect where teams want to get their regional television contracts to uh, vest at 70 games or whatever that that threshold happens to be. So, you know, it seems like the league has generally decided they're going to get to the 70-game threshold and anything over that is just gravy. And so now we're hearing about these round-robin tournaments and other ideas the NBA's floated on what exactly they're going to do when they come back. I'm going to knock on wood for you superstitious folks out there, but I think we can probably say when at this point. The stories the stories we're getting are muscle watch. You don't get muscle watch stories if the league isn't coming back. The stories have pivoted from where are they going to play? Can they play? Is this ever going to happen to? Okay, when it comes back in Orlando, what are we going to see? The simplest answer is, if you could create time for it, you just play out the regular season and the playoffs like normal. But it seems like, because of time constraints and because of whatever other rules you want to throw in there, I think it's largely time constraints at this point, you're probably not looking at the full 15 to 19 games that these teams didn't play. What is it? It's like 14 to 19 games? No, I think it is 15-19 left for most of these teams that haven't happened in a full regular season. So I wanted to spend the first half of today's show talking about Mark Cuban's proposal from yesterday that brings all 30 teams back. Because remember on yesterday's podcast, we talked about the fact that Damian Lillard came out and said, look, if you're bringing us all back, 
but I don't actually have a chance to make the playoffs, which if they only play five games, and I think the the Blazers we mentioned would only be playing four games, if they're only playing four games and they're basically three and a half, four losses out of a playoff spot, he doesn't want to play. And on the podcast, we basically said, that makes a lot of sense. This man is a transcendent superstar who generally carries his team on an annual basis. So for him to come back and look and risk himself, not only viral risk, but also the sort of tune up and then try to go full bore on the court risk just doesn't make any sense. He'll let his teammates get his team to that 70 game threshold. What, what can you do? One of a couple of things. As we mentioned, the simplest solution is to play out more games, but that doesn't seem to be a possibility given time constraints. So what Mark Cuban suggested, and we'll break it down here on today's show, is a plan that that finds a way to get all 30 teams down to Orlando and gives them generally a reason to play. I I think his plan gets 28 out of the 30 teams involved uh at least short term kind of mentally involved so what the plan suggests is that the top 20 actually make the playoffs instead of the top 16 because right now if you took the eight the top eight records from each conference and in and in mark cuban's method it's actually just the top 20 teams overall you now loop in teams that are in that 26 27 win range he's noting that these teams are going to get to the 70 game threshold so it's going to be anywhere from four to seven games to play for the the various teams that are involved but the only teams that this actually eliminates are the Timberwolves and the Golden State Warriors because the 10 seed in the Western Conference is 28 and 36 and the Minnesota Timberwolves are nine games back of that. So even if they played seven games, they couldn't possibly make it. The reason this has legs is looking over in the Eastern Conference, the 10 seed is the Charlotte Hornets at 23 and 42. That actually means that every single team in the Eastern Conference has a chance to get to the 10 seed. What this also does is a team like Memphis that I think felt like they were going to get shafted if there was some sort of weird round-robin thing because they did get that eight seed right now. They remain in, and they do have some advantage going forward. So let's talk about the rest of the details of Mark Cuban's proposal because it's kind of interesting, and I, I, some people call this a harebrained, but I actually find it to be relatively compelling. So it's the top 10 seeds in each conference, which only eliminates the Warriors and the Timberwolves from any kind of playoff opportunity at this point. They're the only two teams that are mathematically eliminated before the league comes back for its four to seven uh, remaining games. Fine. Do whatever the hell you want if you're a member of one of those two teams. I mean, do you want to play Steph in a couple of them or just a few minutes? There's probably no point in playing Clay. I mean, for Steph, he probably just wants a couple of tune-up games, but he might not get out there. And if they want to bench all their guys and go full G League like they did in the middle of the season, they've already done that this year. So it's right on the, right there on the table. For Minnesota, you know, if Cat and D'Angelo Russell are healthy, they might just want to play together. And if they don't, who cares? We're talking about two now out of the 30 teams that wouldn't have a reason to go, as opposed to the last proposition, which is just play five games, and then if anybody changes spots, so be it. As we mentioned yesterday, 
really only six of the 30 teams do care. Six of 30 teams do care. Eight at most about those games because if you're not in the playoffs, you ain't making it in four games. And if you are, there's a handful of teams in there that could potentially change spots. So it's like the middle uh, five teams in the Western Conference and then three teams in the Eastern Conference. You could probably argue like the Heat, the Pacers, Nets, maybe Magic, you could put it put in there as well. Uh, so you're maybe looking at maximum 10 out of the 30 teams that do care. So 20 that don't in one method versus two that don't in the other. The next step of Mark Cuban's proposal is not just to take the top 10 because you can't really have a traditional 20-team playoff structure because two doesn't, uh, two to any factorial, uh, or two to any uh, exponent, I should say, does not go into 20. If you're going to do it a traditional playoff format, it's got to be uh, not just a multiple of two, but a uh, an exponent of two. So two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, and so on. 20 does not fall into that, that method. So how do you wipe out basically four teams and get it down to 16? What Mark Cuban has proposed is that once those teams top 10 in each conference are set, 20 plays 17, and 18 plays 19, either in a one-game, you know, baseball wild card, winner-take-all type of deal, or I think you could probably argue a best of three. Make it a best of three, because that's not that many games. And, dude, can you, I mean, that'd be um, unbelievably compelling basketball from some teams that probably wouldn't be all that good. And in that particular instance, it sounds like they've now wiped out conferences. So there is a pretty darn big advantage to being the 17 seed or the 18 seed there. Because now, you know, every time you move up a little bit in the standings, you not only potentially wipe out a round of the playoffs that you'd have to go through, but you also can really soften up the level of your competition. So what that ends up being then, I mean, if you took this right at this exact moment, uh, well, let's see here. We can we can try to stack this up by overall by overall rankings. This is probably should have something that I should have rewritten prior to starting the uh, recording process here. But uh, right now, if you actually reseeded everybody, the Orlando Magic at thirty and thirty five would be right behind Memphis. So they, I believe, would be the number 17 seed. Uh, Portland, New Orleans. No, that doesn't make sense, actually, because you have to get into the top 10 in each conference to get in. So uh, right now, Washington and Charlotte would be in. Portland and uh, New Orleans, I guess, would be in. I don't know who has the tiebreaker between those teams and, and Sacramento. But let's just, for argument's sake, they say Portland and New Orleans got in on the western side. So Orlando would actually, uh, or Washington, being the nine in the Eastern Conference, is way behind both the nine and the ten in the Western Conference. So the Western teams would be the uh, 17 and 18 seeds, and the Eastern Conference teams would be 19 and 20. So now Portland would get to play someone like Charlotte. New Orleans would get to play most likely Washington, and we've heard that John Wall still isn't coming back even if this this season does resume. So there is an advantage there to, uh, number one, getting in. And if you're like, well, what's the point even? Well, getting past that first group probably wouldn't be all that tough. 
But that only knocks out two teams, and we need to knock out four. So the next thing in Cuban's proposal is that the 15 and 16 seeds would play the winners of those previous two matchups. So let's say that the 17 and 18 seeds won, 15 would play 18, and 16 would play 17. And in this particular instance, uh, if you again did a whole bunch of reseeding here, you're looking at the bottom four being, well, whichever two teams won. So let's say Portland and New Orleans, and then that would be Orlando and Brooklyn. So again, it, it behooves Memphis to continue to win ball games because not only they aren't the 16 out of these teams, they're better than the bottom two playoff teams in the Eastern Conference. So they actually would have been, I believe, number 14 in that case. They would be the number 14 record. So Eastern Conference teams get back in there. Portland and New Orleans then would play Brooklyn and Orlando in that first little best of three or, or winner take all. And then the rest after that just, you know, goes normal playoff style with apparently no conference seeding. So it just one through 16 at that point. The reason I kind of like this is that, number one, it gives a lot of teams reasons to play somewhat hard, at least, during the remaining four to seven games of the season. Sacramento, San Antonio, Phoenix, those teams in our hypothetical example that were on the outside, they have enough games to get past Portland or New Orleans to grab one of those last two playoff spots. Hell, for Sacramento, they're tied with them right now. So I don't know exactly what how the tiebreaker is working at, the, at this moment, but you're talking about if Portland or New Orleans loses any game in Sacramento or even San Antonio wins a game, that thing could switch on a dime. And for Phoenix, they're not that far out either. Over in the Eastern Conference, some of these teams are just so bad that it really, it almost doesn't matter. Cleveland and Atlanta, I'm sure, would be eliminated within one or two games. So perhaps quickly those two teams stop trying. But you can bet Trey Young's going to go hard for two or three days if the opportunity is there. And now suddenly the Bulls could get in. New York? I know. Detroit? Even if they're not really going to try that hard, because, I mean, let's be honest, the Pistons are tanking pretty hard right now. Uh... It's a reason. It's a reason for the players to care a little bit, even if the front office still doesn't. You'd have to figure out what to do with draft picks in this type of situation because if somebody made a long playoff run, but they were like the 20th best record in the NBA, do they jump over the teams they beat early in the playoffs or are they still a lottery? I think they're probably still a lottery team. At least that's, at least that's probably how I would stack it up. That's benefit number one. So it keeps most of the teams involved as long as possible during these weird kind of what would, under a lot of scenarios, be exhibition games leading up to the playoffs. Number two, who's got problems with a couple more playoff games? You could knock out a pair of best-of-three series in a week and a half. Don't, don't screw around. I mean, there's no travel right now. These teams are all going to be in an Orlando bubble. Give them one day off between games, and let's get this thing going. So in our hypothetical example, where Portland is hosting, hosting is obviously in quotation marks because the game ain't in Oregon, but if they're hosting Charlotte and New Orleans is hosting the Washington Wizards, the day the playoffs begin, whatever you want to call it, the, the, you play these, five, these four to seven regular season games, you get one day off, maybe two maximum, and then you start these best of three series. And those should not take longer than five days. 
game, off day, game, off day, game. You plot it out to take five days. You plot the next round off to take five days with one day off. Because if you go the full five, if you need all three games, you're not going to get a long break between series. One day off and then another one. So call it 11 days to knock out these two best of three series, if that's the way you want to do it. I don't think I like winner take all, but I could make the argument that the first of those two rounds is winner take all. That basically these these are four teams that weren't supposed to be in the playoffs anyway. So make it like the the wacky wild card where Portland plays Charlotte one game to get into that next group. New Orleans plays Washington one game to get into that next group. And now you go best of three. So we just save four to five days, by the way, by wiping out two of those basketball games. Uh, you could do a two-day break if you wanted to between the wacky wild card game and then this, whatever you call it, the pre-first round of the playoffs. And then you had this situation where we were talking about Orlando, Brooklyn, Portland, and New Orleans were playing each other. Well, Orlando and Brooklyn, they're in the playoffs. They actually do have, in the NBA, the 15th and 16th best record. So even if you did it without conferences, they they would have made the playoffs right now. So they shouldn't be punished by having to go a winner-take-all game against a team that you might argue has a is not as good. They have a worse record. Although, look, let's be let's be honest here. If you put Orlando in the Western Conference, they weren't going to make the playoffs this year, right? They were game over 500 against the Eastern Conference, and they were six games under 500 against the Western Conference. That's the way it generally goes. Portland was 10 games under 500 against the Western Conference. So they were beating the Eastern Conference teams. Okay? New Orleans was a break-even team against the Eastern Conference. So, like, there's a distinct possibility that this would have shifted around. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Why is this irrelevant? Because... The point is, they are currently in the playoffs under a traditional playoff structure, and you really shouldn't punish those teams with whatever method you draw. So, give them a best of three. I think the way you punish a team like that is saying, hey, winner take all against a team that you should probably beat, but you never know what can happen on one game, especially what if you draw Dame? What if Dame goes off for 60 points in a one-game playoff? That's pretty rough. I mean, he might do that three times in a best of three, so also potentially irrelevant. But regardless, Portland, New Orleans, these are teams that had a legitimate claim to try to make the playoffs if the regular season were to have continued. And so, give them a little bit of a chance to make it. This is how you do it. Or, I don't care, maybe you don't do the non-conference seeding method. Maybe you take the top 10 from each side. For at least that first grouping, you take the bottom four, you take the two, the, the two teams on each side that weren't going to make it and have them battle each other, which is the way that it would have gone in this particular hypothetical example. Anyway, Portland, New Orleans, Washington, Charlotte. And then the winners of those, well, problem there is that if they both come out of the same conference, then you, you get a little bit screwball. So you probably have to make your decision early enough. Let's say we just stick with the uh, wiping out of conferences here. Brooklyn, Orlando, Portland, New Orleans in this pre-first round or the second wild card round. They go best of three. That takes five days, plus the day off or the two days off, and you're looking at seven or eight days for these two extra playoff. I would watch the crap out of those series. I would love to watch a one-game winner-take-all Portland and Charlotte game. 
It's like the first time I could watch a Charlotte game all year without thinking, ugh. New Orleans, Washington for a one-game winner-take-all, that'd be great. Portland, Orlando, best of three. New Orleans, Brooklyn, best of three. Oh, that sounds great. Give me a few extra playoff games. And then, again, you just go into the regular stuff. You know, Lakers, Bucks up at the top of the heap. One of the things that folks were talking about as, you know, a way that this ends up, who does this help and who does this hurt? Uh, Well, currently, the Lakers would be the two seed if you wiped out conferences. Toronto would be the three seed, which means that the Bucks and the Clippers would be one and four. Which means that if you're the Lakers, you're thinking this is the best damn idea anyone's ever had. If you wipe out conferences right now, we could potentially get to the finals without seeing the Bucks or the Clippers. They would be on the other bracket. They'd be dealing with uh, the three seed, which is Boston. Uh, excuse me. Toronto. The Lakers would have to go through Toronto, which has proven to be kind of difficult for some of these teams. You know, make no mistake. Toronto is... You know, you're not going to walk all over them, but they also aren't the Bucks or the Clippers. They've been pretty good. Yeah, Lakers are loving this wipe out the conferences thing. So anyway, at that point, you just go the rest of the way normal style. Best of seven, get rid of conferences just because, screw it, everybody's in a bubble anyway, and you've had to get rid of conferences to get these extra teams into the mix. And now you've got a plan that buys us a few extra basketball games. So, again, again, if you're, if you're talking about this like, well, doesn't this hurt some of the teams at the bottom of the playoffs? Yeah, but, and here's the big but, does anyone really want to come up and try to claim that the teams that are the 7 or the 8 seed in either conference have a prayer of winning the championship? Right? Like, what's, the, what's, what's really happening here? What are we actually getting up in arms about if I'm Memphis or, uh, in our particular example, Brooklyn or Orlando would be the two teams you could argue are getting a little bit shafted here because they don't get a pass into a best-of-seven series. But what if they did get a pass into a best-of-seven series? Those, teams, those two teams would be taking on the Bucks and the Lakers. Bye-bye. Especially if, I mean, what if Kyrie and or Kevin Durant are not on the floor for Brooklyn? Bye-bye. Orlando against Milwaukee? Bye-bye. So, let's say these teams are going to get wiped out in four or five games anyway. Wouldn't it actually be kind of more fun for them to get to play a best-of-three series against a team they have a legitimate shot of beating? To say, hey, we advanced a round in the weirdo playoffs this year. Don't their fans want to see them win? Two games instead of losing four? And maybe you win two games and then you get wiped out by the Lakers or the Bucks anyway. Okay, same end result, but you got to win a few games to get there. That was probably fun for your fans. And it was fun for all of us because we got to see more basketball. You could add three, four, five games, six games to this whole mix. And even if you played seven regular season games, you're still not getting to the number of games that we would have missed that we have already missed when the league shut itself down. So you're still playing fewer games. You're just adding games that are more interesting and giving teams a reason to actually give a hoot. 
So I like it. I actually like it a lot. I don't think it's that harebrained. I think it gets most of the teams uh, partially involved in these weird regular season, whatever you want to call it, regular season games down the stretch. I mean, who would have thought the Knicks might have a prayer of fighting for a, a, a playoff spot? Now, admittedly, if the Knicks made it and they were the 20th spot, they're going to get smoked by Portland or New Orleans or Sacramento, but you got to still think that they'd enjoy it a little bit, right? I would think so. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing that Mark put out. I don't know who's been working on it with him, uh, but it's it's a way to handle a lot of the issues we're looking at right now. And as a Laker fan, I love it. What if you had a Lakers-Clippers finals? That's a possibility if you're wiping out seeding. The other option is you just make these five, six, seven regular season games, exhibition games, and you take the top you take the 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 top sixteen teams or you take the uh one through eight in each conference. I think you've got to go one through eight in each conference because that's the way most of the regular season was built. And if teams knew that it was going to come down to overall record and not conferences, you may have actually seen teams handle the regular season differently. So I don't think you can change that part. Um and then of course if you play the entire regular season, that's your only other option. But Pretty cool stuff. And again, the fact that this is what we're talking about gives me an awful lot of hope that in the next five days we're going to hear about the NBA starting its slog towards actually coming back. I wanted to mention, and we're not going to do a post-mortem on today's podcast because um, talking about this these weird playoff formats ended up taking near a half an hour on the show, and I don't I don't want to rush the post-morta. Morta? Post-mortems? Postmorta. I don't want to rush those. Those are fun. We're learning from them, and I want to give each team its due. I do want to mention, and this is... It's not really a strategic element that we can spend 15, 20 minutes breaking down because it's different every season. But, And I don't know that it's something we can refer to as necessarily a lesson learned from this season because we've already talked about how we do want to change up the way we're drafting the 108 through 180 range. This is about the first couple weeks of the NBA season. And it's, and it's actually a little bit of homework that I, I wanted to set up for you guys. What I'd like you guys to do, this is your homework and you can do it after the podcast is over, or you can do it uh, right now. If you want, you can do it right now. Uh, while the podcast is going. What I want you to do is I want you to go to your league and I want you to go back to the moves made the very first week of your NBA fantasy season. There are some fast and slow ways to actually go about doing this. Um, If you're on Yahoo, you can go to the, uh, the actual URL so basically, you go to the uh, the league heading and then scroll down and click on transactions. I would click on added players because, well, you know, you can go all transactions here. That that That's easy enough among the, the dropdowns. And then if you go to next 25, you'll see up in your browser, up at the top of your browser, uh, it's going to tell you there's a number at the very end of that URL. Just put in some really high number, like 700. And see where it takes you. And, you know, if you see nothing, that means you've gone too far. But then you can kick previous 25, and it'll take you basically to the first moves made in your season. So you find the very first moves made in your season. And I want you to look 
more or less at the first roughly 25 to 40 moves. I'm going to list off some of the moves that were made in one of my most competitive leagues because you guys might find this somewhat illuminating. If you don't, then you know you can just tune me out for a second here. Uh, Mo Harkless got picked up. That was actually the very first move that got made. I don't even know where the hell he was. He was a clipper at that point. Paul George was going to be out for a little bit. Um, Dennis Smith Jr. got dropped. Kyle Anderson got dropped for Markel Fultz. This is before the season had even started, by the way. Uh, Mo Harkless then subsequently got dropped for Isaiah Thomas. Rajon Rondo got dropped for Kendrick Nunn. Uh, IT got dropped for Bobby Portis. Landry Shamit got dropped for Christian Wood. Bobby Portis got dropped again for Mo Harkless. That's one team that's been that was cycling through some guys. Shout out to Karen for uh, making like six moves before the first night had happened. Uh, Goran Dragic got dropped for Markeith Morris. Nick Batum for Josh Hart. Kendrick Nunn for Devontae Graham. Highlighting that one. Ish Smith got dropped for Luke Kennard. Rashawn Holmes got dropped for Alfred Payton. Christian Wood got dropped for Landry Shamit again. This the cycle continues. Jared Culver got dropped for Bobby Portis. Monty Morris for Nemanja Bialica. Luke Kennard for Aaron Baines. Now we're into the first week of games. By the way, we're a couple days in. Zubats for Kaminsky. Harkless for Robert Williams. Josh Hart for Kendrick Nunn. Frank Kaminsky for Rashawn Holmes. Mo Bamba for Goran Dragic. Eric Gordon for Isaiah Thomas. Darius Garland for Eric Pascal. Robert Williams for Ben Forbes. Bobby Portis for Jay Crowder. Isaiah Thomas for Chris Dunn. So on and so forth. You're hearing a lot of names getting recycled even in the first week of the season. A couple of names stand out as we go through those first. That was 27 moves that I just rattled off. I think there was another. Maybe that was 26. Uh, Devontae Graham. Devontae Graham got picked up in that that hullabaloo and was basically the only player that was worth picking up that wasn't actually on a team already. I might argue that Rashawn Holmes was kind of the only other guy on that list that was worth picking up at all, although you could give a nod to Luke Kennard, who was useful before he got hurt, and Alfred Payton, who got useful, got hurt, and then got useful again. Again, this isn't really a strict lesson to be learned, other than to say, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on the first week of an NBA season, and you're going to see a lot of roster churn that amounts to a whole boatload of nothing. I mean, I'll go another 25 moves in and see if I can find anything. Someone dropped TJ Warren during that first week which is not a great decision. The drop of Rashawn Holmes was not a good decision. There was a drop of DeAndre Jordan, which actually not, I mean, he was outside the top 100, so I'm not going to actually, oh, hey, that was me. I forgot I did that. Not a really big deal anyway. Uh, Luke Kennard was kind of on and off of teams a little bit. Tomas Sadoransky got dropped during that mix. Uh, but again, the only player really that got picked up the first week of this season in a competitive league, and I get it, in less competitive leagues, you probably had more players that were uh, bubbly that didn't get drafted. The only player that got picked up that wasn't previously on a roster was Devontae Graham, who no one saw coming. The real key here is, you may have noticed, Two to three good players got dropped the first week, week and a half of the season. All this to say, 
there are often there are often decent players that pop up the first week of the year. And if you go back even three, four years ago, that number was much bigger. But now we are so piped in to every single little thing that teams are doing that the number of undiscovered monsters the first week of the year is almost zero. Devontae Graham, I would argue, the only one. You might give a a very slight nod, a very slight nod, to Alfred Payton, who played well, then played poorly, then played well again. He ended up at number 125, sort of a weird mixed bag of a season because his percentages are both horrible. Uh, he does get steals and and assists at a pretty good clip, but a lot of his other stuff is pretty, pretty raunchy. Um, I mean, you can look at kind of his his weird season breakdown and and figure out where he fits in a lot of stuff. But again, you know, when he was playing giant minutes, he was sort of useful. His last not his last ten games, he was averaging eleven and eight and a half, and he was still outside the top two hundred. So that again gives you a little bit of a of a hint on why I've been so down on Alfred Payton as a whole. He needs the steals and assists both to be really high to get anywhere near fantasy value. So I'm not going to put him on my list. There was really legitimately one player picked up during the first week and a half. The first week and a half. I mean that's that's a lot of I mean that's that's five games for a lot of these teams. One player that was a fantasy difference maker, picked up, but multiple useful players dropped during that stretch. And the lesson to be learned here is we want to be more careful than ever with early season roster moves. We you know we talk about the magic of small sample size, the magic of small sample size. There were some guys that looked like they might be useful in that mix. They were not. You know, I guess you could argue Nemanja Bialica getting picked up early was a good thing, but I, I believe that came, was that after the, the injury to Marvin Bagley? Can't remember exactly when that shook out. But, I mean, there, if the Kings stayed healthy all season long, I don't know that Bialica would have had much in the way of fantasy value, but again, he had his voodoo doll, and so blah, 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 blah. Um, Aaron Baines was useful for a few days, but that was suspension related. One player that wasn't tied to a suspension or an injury that was picked up that became fantasy useful for an entire season. Jay Crowder, he gets sort of an honorable, honorable mention because he was kind of on and off of teams all season long, uh, ended up as a relatively useful fantasy asset, actually played better in Miami than he did in Memphis. He finished at number 99, if you want to throw him in the mix, that's fine just to, to sort of pad the numbers a little bit. But key players got dropped. That shouldn't have been dropped. So as we turn towards next season, and again, this is not really a lesson to be learned because you're never going to know who the right name is. There is, I believe, a pretty intense desire to overreact to one or two big games the first week of the season. And historically, that's been a time where you want to make 
a fast move on someone. Historically, that actually has been the case. Guys surface that nobody saw coming. Again, as recently as three or four years ago, there were usually a handful of Devontae Grahams out there. He was number 77. Usually a handful of top 80 guys that went undrafted. Like, let's go back to the 2016-2017 NBA season and look at guys in that 75 to 100 range. I don't remember exactly how this draft went because it's been half a damn decade, but I'd be willing to venture a guess that uh, Seth Curry probably wasn't drafted that year. Was, was Michael Kidd Gilchrist drafted that year? Was Tyler Johnson drafted that year? I mean, there's some weird names in that mix. Guys that got picked up early in the season that probably weren't drafted. People didn't see him coming. But now all of a sudden, we've hit this information overload. Everybody knows everything about everything. So please be cautious with the guys you're drafting. You probably drafted guys because you thought they were going to be decent. We're going to get really aggressive with our last five or six picks, right? We talked about that. My last five or six picks in this draft were Boyan Bogdanovich, Derek White, Kent Bazemore, Dennis Schroeder, DeAndre Jordan, Rashawn Holmes. I drafted those guys because I thought they had either a potential for racking up fantasy value quickly, a good stat set, that is Rashawn Holmes, Kent Bazemore, Derek White, or guys that were going to plod along and get a bunch of minutes and do stuff with them. Dennis Schroeder, Boyan Bogdanovich, DeAndre Jordan, that was not a great draft pick, actually, at the time. I don't know exactly why I grabbed him. I, with KD out, I, I really should have known better. But DeAndre did end up playing himself into more minutes late in the season. Uh, so as you're looking at the first couple weeks of the year, you have to assess, why did I draft the guys I drafted? You know, in this particular season, Rashawn Holmes came out, played almost no minutes those first couple of games. Kent Bazemore didn't do almost anything in the beginning of the year. Derek White looked like he wasn't going to see nearly enough time to be fantasy relevant. So they're like right out of the shoot, there were a few of those guys that didn't look like they were going to be big hits. So what do you do? Like what if someone like Devontae Graham surfaces in that moment? How do you make the call? Do I drop someone for this guy? Well, you have to assess accurately what is the upside of the guy I'm dropping. The upside of Rashawn Holmes was stratospheric and I made an idiotic decision the upside of DeAndre Jordan really all not all that high at all Kent Bazemore's upside was okay but we were seeing that it probably wasn't going to click especially with at the time Rodney Hood playing well Dennis Schroeder we knew he had some pretty good upside Derek White there was upside we didn't know if there were if he was ever going to get to play didn't really and then Boyan Bogdanovich, he was never really at risk of getting dropped. So it was really more of that bottom five grouping. This is what we need to do at the beginning of the season. We need to be aware of why we drafted guys and accurately assess what it is you're looking at when someone does pop off the first couple games of the year. Knowing at this point, it's just not going to happen that much. The guys that go nuts, these guys that go nuts early in the year, it's just not going to happen that much. We're sort of onto it at this point. 
Who's who are the big fantasy pickups? They're not all at the beginning of the season. Very few of them, in fact, these days are at the beginning of the season. We didn't really figure out Daniel Tice for a while. Michael Bridges didn't kick it into high gear for a while. And then it's just roster churn. Same dudes on and off everybody's roster over and over again. Look at some of the names. Go to your league. Look at some of the names. Look at some of the names that got picked up and dropped the first two weeks of the year. And tell me, were you freaking out about some of these guys? I was. You were. We all were. That's how it works. The magic of small sample size. So that's our little reminder here at the end of the show. Because I wanted to spend a little bit more talking about what sort of NBA we might return to. And uh, we did that. So tomorrow we'll dive back into the postmortems. That'll be our Thursday show. This is Wednesday's Fantasy NBA Today. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Dan Baspris. We'll talk to you tomorrow. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.